Good, good. All right. Scott is going to cue a song for me. Um, some of you may know this song from back in the day. A couple of you were like, you can't play this song in church. I can play this song in church. Uh, Nat, <laughs> Carson, like getting shouting there. So Nat loves uh, the band, the band Coldplay. Uh, I like him too, not as much as she does. Um, some of you will know the song that Scott's kind of playing in the background. This is one of our favorite songs by them. It's Viva La Vida. It was their first like number one hit in the UK and in the US. Um, I asked Carson this week, if, if you don't know, Carson gets to work in an industry where he gets to know stuff about this. I was like, before I say something dumb, this Sunday about what this song is about. Let me just make sure. So I've checked with the experts, and what I believe this song is about is, in fact, what it is about. It's about uh, the French king, King Louis XVI, who uh, showed a lot of promise, but it's, an, it's, it's about uh, an alleged speech that he would have written on the day that he was guillotined, on January the 21st, 1793. Some of you will know, more than you'll know about King Louis, you will know King Louis's wife, Marie Antoinette, who said, let them eat cake. She was so out of touch with the French people. And, um, and so you get into this chorus where, and in the song, where he says this, I love this. He says, I used to rule the world. Seas would rise when I gave the word. Now in the morning, I sleep alone. I sweep the streets I used to own. And then in the next verse, he says, one minute I held the key, the next the walls closed in on me. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Like, it's felt like that's happened to me a time or two in my life. And he says, I discovered my castles stand on pillars of sand, pillars of sand. And the song kind of ends with him literally heading toward the guillotine uh, to be killed. He started his reign with like great promise that his dad, Louis XV, never lived into, or his granddad and then he doesn't live up to the hype either, and he loses his head. Of this song, and Scott, if you'll turn it down a little bit, I want to read you what a guy for J. Ben Yu wrote about uh, this song in Media Magazine. He said, oddly enough, the song demands sympathy for the overthrown king. Coldplay depicts the king's final speech not as a cry, as a plea for help or a cry of damnation, but as an admittance of regret. Here's a guy who led his country, who uh, had everything and is about to go lose his head, and he's admitting regret. This regret humanizes the king, showing understanding that he had ultimately failed his people. Once a revolutionary himself, the first part of his reign was that of enlightenment reform. However, along his kingship, he lost the sight of his values, retreating to the comforts of his palace rather than facing his problems. The song shows the regret of a man who once promised so much more, but delivered none. Boy, what a, like, I will never, I don't, like, every time I'd heard rumors that this was what this song was about, and then this week just reading a lot about this song, I, I think so many of us live with that. A person who promised so much more, but delivered none, accepting his fate as he knows it is well deserved. First of all, let me say I'm thankful for the gospel, that we actually deserve less, and God gives us more. And we don't live up to our promise, and yet God delivers us. And yet even, whether we're good, bad, rich, poor, religious, not, uh, God meets us at our place of brokenness. I love the line of a song we just sang, there's no lie, you won't tear down, wall, you won't kick down, I'm not getting the words right, but I love the idea of God coming after me because so much of what I tend to think this is about is me coming after God. 
And the gospel is God comes after us, even at our worst spots. And so James, which is a book we're looking at, we're not doing a series this right now on Coldplay. We're doing a series on the book of James. So if you've got a Bible, you might turn to the book of James. And if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, if you don't have a Bible, it's okay. We're going to put the verses up here in just a moment, uh, and you'll be able to follow along because we're going to bounce around on some verses today. But James, if you remember, was written by Jesus's half-brother to a bunch of Jewish, culturally Jewish followers of Christ who, after the deaths of two of their leaders in the church in Jerusalem, they were all living there right after Jesus's resurrection, after the death of a couple of leaders in the early church, um, all of these new believers in Jerusalem scattered throughout the Roman Empire, literally for safety. They went from being nobodies in Jerusalem to being on the most wanted list on posters all over the Roman Empire. And so James is writing a letter to them. This is before the Gospels have been written. This is before Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. All the stories of Jesus' life at this point are just being passed along orally. You remember when Jesus said this? Remember when Jesus did this? And James, Jesus' half-brother, who is now the leader in the church in Jerusalem, is writing a letter to these new followers of Christ all over the Roman Empire. And he's talking to them because some of them are teetering on the brink. Some of them are literally at a King Louis XVI kind of a moment. And James is giving a warning to them. I'll be honest, the verses that we're going to read today are a little haunting. They're a little heavy. uh, And they are a warning um, so I will stop there. All right, so we're in the middle of a series called Untended Fire. So an, an author named Gail McDonald, her, 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 her husband um, has been a pastor in Lexington for decades. Yeah, I think he's now since retired. Gail McDonald in a book said, Untended Fires Soon Die and Become a Pile of Ashes. And so the idea of the series is looking at the book of James and saying, okay, what are some fires in our life that we need to tend up and stoke up and make sure they don't go out, throw another log on? And what are some fires in our life, because we all have them, that we just need to let them burn out? Just leave them alone, let them go. And so each week, as we look at a passage in James, we're trying to say, okay, what is it we need to stoke up in our life? And what is it that we need to let burn down in our lives? And so James is writing uh, to Christians around 45 AD. That's when the book is written about 15, 12 to 15 years after Jesus' resurrection. He's writing to Christians who are scattered in the Roman Empire, fleeing arrest and persecution and death for believing that Jesus was the Savior. Most of them, if you were here last week, will remember that most of the people James is writing to are really poor. And they're really marginalized and they're really lonely and it's a real trial for them. They're going through it because they've left their family and left everything that they've known. Some of them, however, who had to scatter were wealthy in Jerusalem and they've gone to these other new cities in the dispersion, the Roman Empire, and now they're making money and they're getting really comfortable. And James is writing to all of them throughout the book of James. Some of them you'll see a real tenderness. He's very tender and he's like, Count it all joy whenever you go through trials of various kinds. Like he's very tender. At other times, he's very firm. Today's going to be very firm with this group of people who have become wealthy in the dispersion. Now, let me tell you one more thing. I was reading James this morning. I'm reading through James every morning about five verses at a time. And I was reading it and I had to remind myself, okay, this is not written to me in 2021. This was written to some people 
2,000 years ago in Roman Empire cities. It's important when we read the Bible on our own or in church to always remember, we can't just be like, well, what does this mean to me? We have to say, okay, when the person wrote this, who were they writing it to and why were they writing it and what did it mean then? And then we build a bridge over to where we are at this point and reading it, 2021 in Charlestown, in Boston, in America. And so I want to be careful today to start by saying everything that James wrote, remember, he's not writing to Natalie and to Barrett and to Miguel and to Miles. He's writing to a group of people living in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago who were going through it. And so we're going to bounce around. I'm going to show you a few verses, all on the same theme. Uh, the thing about James, it's written almost like the book of Proverbs. It's, a, it's an idea, a paragraph here and a paragraph here and a paragraph here. You don't have to, we, we don't feel like we have to read James as a church in a linear verse, chapter one, verse one to the last verse of the last chapter. We can kind of bounce around and get the ideas. We're going to do some of that today. All right, so let's start in James 1, verse 9. And here's what he's doing today. He's talking to people these Christians, these Christ followers, and saying, are you going to live independently or are you going to live God-dependently? This is what he's saying to them. This is what he's saying to us. Are you going to live with a, this is it, this is as good as it gets mentality of life, or are you going to live with a, uh, the opposite of what Frederick Nietzsche once said when Nietzsche said that life is not a dress rehearsal? Are you going to live with a mentality that life is, in fact, not all there is, that there is something after this that lasts for eternity, and this is a warm-up for that. Are we going to live with self-reliance or God-reliance? And even more, if I were th- thinking about a title for today's sermon, are we going to live with a satisfaction or a desperation? James is writing to satisfied, world-satisfied people and calling them to God-desperation today, and we'll see that. All right, so here we go. James 1, verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and it withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. We're going to go to chapter 4 in just a moment, but every time we do a little reading, I want to explain, give you some context for what's going on, and then we'll move to the next part. So James says, let the lowly Christian, the lowly brother, the lowly sister, boast in their heights. Be boasting in their heights. that, That would be the Greek translation. Let the one who feels like they're low and unseen be literally in the, in the depths of their struggle, be boasting, ongoing, keep going in their heights. The lower you see someone who is in Christ and in a low station of life, James says, let them be boasting constantly over and over in the heights. That is so counter to everything in our culture. That is so counter to everything in our culture. We are the most fame-obsessed people who have ever lived. And this makes no sense to us. We place so much value on what someone has that this makes no sense to us. And it didn't make sense to them either. It's upside down. And then he goes on and he says, and let the rich one be, how does he say it? Be boasting in his humiliation. Now, no one would be boasting in their humiliation James is saying, if you're rich and independent and self-sustaining and God-independent, 
understand that that is not a way to live. So why boast in poverty? Uh, I don't subscribe to the idea that Christians should hate money. I subscribe to the idea that I think Jesus did, that money is a great tool and a horrible master. And it can do amazing things for the kingdom of God. But when it becomes our master, it becomes really dangerous. So why would James tell them to boast in poverty? Let me share a couple of verses with you, Hope. I think we've got them. Matthew 5, 3. If you will, Hope. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, it went away. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm about to test Hope today like nobody's business. There's so many slides. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But that's not talking about money. Jesus gave a similar sermon later, Hope, if you'll go to that one, in Luke 6, where he actually says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. God loves people who are broke. Now, not broke because they were stupid, not broke because they have an addiction to spending on their credit card, but God delights in people who have nothing but him. He calls them blessed, happy, joyful are the ones who are poor. So James would say, you can boast in your poverty to the majority who are hearing this. God sees and, I, and cares and identifies with and delivers us in the middle of our poverty. And James says, let the one who's poor, let the one who's rich in this world understand that their wealth is like summer grasses and Middle Eastern heat. This week in the Mojave Desert in Eastern California, it was 130 degrees. I love it when people from the, is anybody here from like out west? I love it when people like in the southwest are like, yeah, but it's a dry heat. Like, I'm sorry, at 130 degrees, like I can't even, I don't want to do that. I don't care if it's dry, slimy, wet. I don't want any part of 130 degrees. It, it approached actually the world record, which was 136 degrees in the Middle East in Libya, uh, I think 20 or 30 years ago, if I remember correctly. I looked it up. I didn't check the year. This is an insane amount of heat. In the Middle East, and remember, James is writing to people who got out of Jerusalem and went through Middle Eastern wastelands to get to their new cities. And he says, the one who is rich is like Middle Eastern grass that springs up in the morning and the dew of the morning and then burns up in the heat of the afternoon. He says, this is what the one who is self-reliant, the one who has worldly wealth and self-reliance is like. Now, skip over to James 4. We're going to read a couple verses in James 4 along a similar theme. James 4, 13, it says this. Come, now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is a sin. Now, again, James is not just picking on wealthy people. And if James were here today, he would, like, just so you don't think, like, I'm the pastor who's berating you. If James were here today, all of us would be rich. Every single one of us in this room would be who he would be talking to. All of us have a certain level of being able to presume on life and even presume on God. We all can tend to say, like, I have events in my calendar marked for five years from now. 
Any of you ever do this? You like make a bet with your kids. You're like, if in five years, if you haven't done da, 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 and then I will literally set an alarm to remind me five years from now of what we bet on. Has anybody ever done this? You should. It's really fun to gamble with your children. Um, like we will set alarms. That is humorously presumptuous. But what James is talking about here is people who take no account of what is God's going to do in his life and re- in their lives. And remember who he's writing to. He's writing to people who just a few months ago were probably presuming that their life was going to continue to be the exact same way it was in Jerusalem. And they got moved on. He's talking to an uprooted people who are now rooting themselves down again in a different place, just as presumptuous on God as they were before, before he uprooted them. And he says, all of us are like a mist. We're here and gone. Presuming on tomorrow, he would say his evil and foolish boasting. And now let me read the last six verses we're going to read. This is James 5, continuing right where we left off. He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl. That is heavy. When the Bible tells me to weep and howl, that's heavy. Um, I like to think of church as singing, leaving, feeling awesome about myself, God telling me that Jesus died for me and I'm amazing. When the Bible tells me to weep and howl about something, like I perk up and not always in the most exciting way. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. Ugh! You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts." he's saying? Let me read one more, two more. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So here, James is taking an old school, Old Testament prophetic tone. He's like, wake up, mourn. Have you ever been in a church service where somebody preached with like an old school prophetic like tone. Have you ever heard that? Like those are the kind of preachers where if you've never heard one, you, if you want to sit like where Ed and Carson and Jamie are like, you need to come with a poncho to church because you're going to get hit with like spit and slobber and they're going to just let you have it. James is doing a bit of that here. He is like, come and weep and howl. What traditionally for Jewish people, what they would do when They began to lament over their sin and their brokenness. They would tear the neck of their shirt and then they would go and get ashes and pour ashes on their head and then just sit in a pile of ashes and weep for what they had done and for what they had become. And here, that's what James is calling these Christians to. He's like, come and weep and howl and lament over what you've become. It would be like James writing to King Louis XVI at the heights and saying, come and weep and mourn. And then Louis would be like, what, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Why are you telling me to mourn? I have everything. And James would say the same to us today, to the self-reliant and the God-independent followers of Christ. He would say, weep and mourn, JD, weep and mourn. 
that if God takes a week off, you're going to be okay. Not so much because you're blessed, but because there creeps into your heart something that begins to not need God quite as much. And that is the dangerous part. It's not so much what we have, but what we, what, what we have can do to our hearts if we're not careful. And so he says, lament, weep, and howl. Your riches rot, your garments get eaten, your money's corroded, and your flesh will be eaten. You are, he says, you have stored up treasure in the last days. Now, if that makes no sense to you, let me explain really quickly. Some of you will get this, some may not. From the moment Jesus rose from the dead, he was with the disciples for 40 more days on earth. And then he ascended back into heaven where he is today sitting at the right hand of God. But Jesus promised that he would come back and he would take all the sad and broken things and he would make them untrue and he would set up his reign and the followers of Christ would live in perfect harmony with Jesus for the rest of eternity. And everything from the moment of Jesus' ascension to the moment of Jesus' return is called the last days. And so Paul and James and Peter wrote that the church was living in the last days. And we believe that we're still living in the last days. Now, I'm not a doomsday prepper who says, man, go buy a bunch of stuff and store it in your house because Armageddon's coming or anything like that. Jesus hasn't come back for 2,000 years to set up his kingdom. He may not come back for another 2,000. I want to take care of my body and my mind and my family like he may not come back for 1,000 years. And I want to take care of my soul and my dependence on him like he may come back tomorrow. And that's what James is calling these people to, to be God-dependent and not self-reliant. And then he really lays in to unjust people, injustice, people who got rich on somebody else's back, people who robbed their employees so they could have a better bottom line. And so he says, you are in deep trouble. So I want to give you, like, I want to pivot and give you four signs of self-reliant people, all right? Four signs, four traits of self-reliant, independent, earth-satisfied people. And, uh, and let me tell you, this is not popular. <laughs> I wish sometimes, Nick and I will joke about um, what it's like to stand here singing or preaching uh, hard things. Today is a hard sermon. But just like James, I would be doing you an injustice if I only told you the easy stuff, right? Sometimes the gospel tells us hard things. And that's why as a church, we want to preach through books of the Bible. So I'm not like, here's three more ways to fix your 401k. And here's eight ways to have an awesome marriage. And here's six ways to find your dream guy or dream girl. Like, I'm doing you a complete disservice if we do that every week. And so we preach through books of the Bible to deal with subjects and topics that are tough. All right, so let me show you this. Everywhere you see an orange is a slide for hope. Everywhere you see a green is more slides for hope that are Bible verses. So pray for hope. We're about to run through the gauntlet here, all right? Number one, sign of self-reliance. Self-reliant, God-independent people pursue temporal things. I think we have a slide for this. They pursue things that don't last. It's like pursuing desert grasses in summer. I want to show you two creatures and God's creative genius that he made, if you will. I hope if you'll go to that next one. Uh, The first one on the left is called a bowhead whale. 
Bowhead whales, I've learned about. Do you know bowhead whales, Barrett? You look excited. You don't. Anybody into whales and ocean life? My boys. Yep, there we go. Thank you. Noah's listening. Praise the Lord. Um, so here's the thing about bowhead whales. Bowhead whales, they don't exactly know how old they live. But there's two ways that they think they know how old bowhead whales grow to be. One is by finding fragments of things in dead bowhead whales. For example, a bowhead whale recently died in the last couple of years, and in it they found a harpoon from the 1800s. The other way that they find out how old bowhead whales are is there's a way that they can test their DNA, and scientists are really confident that bowhead whales can live to be at least 268 years old. That's incredible. So if a bowhead whale has a a summer home in the Arctic and a winter home down near the Gulf of Mexico, like more power to him. Like he's going to be around for a while to enjoy those things, right? That's a good thing. The other creature I want to show you over here, not quite as cute as the bowhead whale and its baby, is the mayfly. A mayfly lives one day. A mayfly literally lives... 24 hours. In God's economy, a mayfly has three goals. Be born, reproduce, and land on your food when you're at a picnic. Like, that's all he does. He is born, he reproduces, and he gets in your eyes when you're playing, uh, like, or gets on your, like, have you ever come out to, maybe you've been in a place, I don't know if, I've never seen these in New England. We saw something like this in Cleveland on vacation the other day. Have you ever come out to your car and there'd be like a thousand bugs on your car at once? Has anybody ever been to a place where this has happened? So you're shaking your head, Lana. It's gross, isn't it? Mayflies are one of those bugs. They pop up, they're there a day, and then they're just a nuisance and they're gone. This is what James would say. James would say, you matter. Your life matters. It matters so much that God sent his only son to die on the cross for our sin. Your life matters. Our lives matter. But James would also say, you and I are made for eternity. This isn't it. This isn't it. Like when we hear of tragedies and travesties in our society, we remember that we're made for eternity. That's actually really encouraging and hopeful news in a world where really evil and awful things happen. And James would finally also say, you're actually closer to a mayfly than you are to a bowhead whale. In the grand scheme of things, your life is much more like a mayfly than a bowhead whale. And so the alternative to pursuing temporal things is to live in today while living for eternity. Live in today for eternity. Live in today for eternity. Enjoy the stuff of life. Like Nat and I are like, if we came into $100,000 tomorrow, what would we do? And we got a list. Like we can tell you almost down to the dollar what we would do with an unexpected $100,000. Like, you know, I got, I mean, I got a list. It's awesome. Her list is different. So pray we never come into $100,000 because it could test us for real. Like, so we want to live in today, but remember that we're living for eternity. YOLO, you only live once, is not a worldview for a Christian. You don't, for a Christ follower, actually only live once. You don't live once. Second thing that happens with a, a God-independent life is it assumes. Self-reliant people assume a lot of things. I think there are two main things we assume when we're living in self-reliance. One, we assume timelines. And two, we assume prosperity. No one lives forever. 
Bull markets always become bear markets eventually. Ecclesiastes 3 says that there's a time for everything. There's a time to live, a time to die, a time for joy, a time for weeping, a time to gather stones, a time to scatter stones, a time to mourn, a time to dance, all those things. There's a Latin quote that the Puritans used to have and the, and the Methodists used to have. It's called Deo Valente. Um, Deo Valente. I hadn't heard of Deo Valente in a long time. And I think we've got a quote up for this, Hope, if you'll throw it up there. It means God willing in Latin. And the Puritans would often, when they were talking, just say Deo Valente. And the Methodists after the Puritans would say Deo Valente. And they would even, the, the Methodists would actually even sign their letters. And it says, sincerely, yours truly, they would sign their letters D. V, Deo Valente, God willing. And of that, Arkent Hughes has said, I wonder if the reason we don't use the DV today is not so much the fear of the cliche, but rather the influence of our modern world, which rejects a transcendent God. Deo Valente is to be the constant refrain of our hearts as we conduct the affairs of our lives. If God wills, rather than assuming Timelines and prosperity, if God wills, must be written over students' plans, the choice of a life partner, future education, all everyday activities. Older people need to say from the heart, if God wills, I will spend my time, da-da-da. If God wills, my children will become this. If God wills, I will take up this ministry. If God wills, I will wake up tomorrow. All of us should take this heart attitude. Deo Valente. A self-reliant heart just assumes that we will always have and we will always be. A God-dependent heart, the thing it does is it lives by faith in God's will and in God's plans. I hope you don't have to throw out Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. The third thing about a self-reliant heart is it delays justice. And it delays righteousness. And it delays everything good. A self-reliant heart will often put things off. I will give. I will serve. I will repent. I will fix. I will call. I will witness, etc. tomorrow. I'll do that tomorrow. I'll do that tomorrow. Tomorrow I'll take care of that. Martin Luther King once said, while sitting, by the way, in a Birmingham jail, in his letter from Birmingham jail, Martin Luther King said, justice too long delayed is justice denied. Justice too long delayed is justice denied. A self-reliant heart delays and denies in doing so justice. The alternative is Micah 6, 8, which says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justly and love mercy and, and walk humbly with your God. That's a good life. Do justly, do justice, make justice, love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Do it today. Obey today. Witness today. Do justice today. Hebrews 3, 13 through 15 talks about how we don't put off to tomorrow what needs to, while it's still called today, do the things that God is calling us to do and be. Even be saved today. Repent today. Don't put it off. I think this if I were to be honest, like if we were to say, well, what is the plague of the church in our country and in our culture? This would probably be up there. The idea that we'll do it tomorrow. We'll take care of this stuff tomorrow. 
I'll share the gospel tomorrow. I'll go on that trip tomorrow. I'll talk to that coworker tomorrow. I will serve this person tomorrow. We'll end foster care and homelessness and addiction in our city tomorrow. We'll take care of that tomorrow. Today, we just want to do our thing. And James says that that's incompatible with a God-dependent life. Do it today. Fourth thing, fourth trait of a self-reliant person is uh, hoarding and withholding. Hoarding and withholding. Christians who have become self-reliant hoard and withhold. It may be finances. It may also be opportunities, community. It may be witness. It may be embodying the kingdom. Jamie uh, and Barb and I make up the stewardship team at Christ Church Charlestown. That means a couple things. One, it means that I'm not counting the money and seeing who gives, which is good. I like that part. The other thing that I'm so grateful for with Jamie is there's been so many times where there's been a need in the community and Jamie has literally like seen it and put the foot on the gas and said, get the church debit card, get the checkbook, let's meet a need. Our church may not be here in 100 years. So if we have the resources to bless our community or a church planter or a missionary or somebody, we have to do it has been his and Barb's constant refrain. And I'm so grateful for that. Do justice today. We don't hoard. We don't withhold for you and for our church. Would we give everything? Would we create opportunity? Will we sacrifice our comfortable community for the outsider and for the one? For the one? Like, would we give up our seat, our comfort, whatever it is, for the one who doesn't yet know Christ? Jesus told a parable of a pearl of great price. And he was saying that finding the kingdom of God is like having a field of a life and finding an invaluable pearl, which is the gospel in the middle of it and selling your life to get the pearl, him. But the parable works on a bunch of different levels. Would we also be willing to just sell everything to stay God dependent? Is there anything that you cling to that allows you to not be God dependent. I'll be honest, like there's things in my life that if God said, I want that, it would scare me to death. And that doesn't mean he's gonna take it because I don't think God's mean. God's a really good dad, the best dad. The best dads on earth are just a poor reflection of what a good heavenly father God is. So I don't think he's trying to take things and mess with us. But I do think he wants us to lay it all on the table and say, God, here, the answer is yes. Before you ask the question, here it is. Boom. You can have it. You can have all of me. You can have all I got. It's yours. The alternative to hoarding and withholding is radical trust, radical generosity, open hands, yes on the table. Nat and I have joked about our boys. We have said, <laughs> people have asked us a lot over the last 15 years, or I guess since we've had boys, so 12 years, do you want your boys to grow up to be a pastor? Uh, that is usually like, nah. <laughs> it's all, we're all set. <laughs> we don't have to do that. Now, if God called Noah Noah to be a pastor, we would delight in that. That would be amazing one day if he did that. But if he doesn't, even what we more want for them is God's best for them and an open-handed yes in their hearts to all things relating to the Lord. And what I want for us is an open-handed yes in all things relating to them, relating to the Lord. 
If God calls them to go be missionaries to some unreached people group in the Middle East who've never heard the gospel and it may cost them their lives, I want to have the courage and faith to say, yes, I don't want to hoard and withhold even my sons. We lay it all before the Lord. In 2004, I'll tell you a story and we'll wind it down. Nat and I were newlyweds. And when we were newlyweds, we would pillow talk at night. And we would, you know, I like to ask dumb conversational questions. And one question I asked one night, we were living in Georgia, uh, 30 minutes for family. And one question, we were laying there and I said, babe, where is one place you do not want to live in America? And we made a list. We did. Uh, the list was, we, we agreed, uh, and you got to understand I'm from Georgia, and the only thing in Georgia you, that I was raised to hate more than Alabama was the state of South Carolina. Um, and so, now, so we said that night, we never want to live in South Carolina, never want to live in Idaho or Montana. I don't know why those three made the list. I don't know why Alabama didn't make the list. So I'm being honest, like, it makes no sense to me in retrospect. So, of course, four years later, when God called us to plant a church, where did he call us to go? South Carolina. <laughs> South Carolina, clear as day. Like we had opportunities to go elsewhere. God had called us to other places, but South Carolina was the place God was calling us. And, uh, and even now, um, what that taught me is that we're to live like a Deo Valente, God-dependent life. I learned the hard way not to tell God what I will and will not do. And that's who James is writing to. He's writing to people who follow Christ, who have got their list for everything life is going to be like. And they're storing and making a way and even cheating people to accomplish their end. And he says, I want you to live a God-dependent, Lord-willing, Deo Valente life. Does God have permission from you to do as he pleases? Or um, like I have so many times in my life, do you have a script for your life, a budget for your life, a map for your life, a direction for your life, a trajectory for your life, and a reputation for your life that you cling to and have to uphold. God-dependent people let go of those things. So what do we stoke up? We stoke up God-dependence, and we stoke up desperation. We stoke up desperation. I mean, we stoke up a desperation and dependence on God that is like that desperation when you find out there's going to be a test on Friday and it's Thursday and you haven't even cracked the book yet. Do you ever, like, have you ever prayed that prayer like, God, in Jesus' name, like, I'm going to sleep on this book and just pray that you help me absorb it in the night, Lord. I am desperate, God. This test is coming tomorrow. Like, that kind of desperation. We stoke up a God-dependent desperation and we burn down worldly satisfaction and a this is it mentality. We've got to let that burn out. We've got to let it burn out. So we started with a king, Louis XVI. I want to conclude with a king, King Jesus. King Jesus did not pursue the temporal. He didn't assume comfort. He didn't delay obedience, uh, even to death on a cross. And he did not withhold himself, his own life. Uh, he actually exchanged the injustice that we earned for justice that makes no sense. A kingdom justice where he gave everything. Have you trusted Christ? Are you trusting Christ for everything? For everything. Let me pray for you.